Welcome to PSQH the Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Greg Latham, attending anesthesiologist at Seattle Children's Hospital, and Dan Lowe, Chief Medical Officer of MD Metrics, about using AI to reduce opioid use during surgeries to keep pediatric patients safe. And now, on to the episode. Hello, this is Jay Kumar of PSQH. I'm joined today by Greg Latham, MD, attending anesthesiologist at Seattle Children's Hospital. How's it going, Greg? I'm doing well, thank you. Good morning. Morning, and I'm also here with Dan Lowe, MD, Chief Medical Officer of MD Metrics. How are you, Dan? Great, thanks for having us. All right, and today we're gonna talk about how Seattle Children's and MD Metrics basically teamed up to develop the nation's first opioid-free surgery center. Um, and I guess uh, wanted to just sort of start off with, at the beginning and uh, ask you guys, how did, how did this initiative come together? I don't know, uh, Greg, if you wanted to sort of start off. Uh, the, the first step that started um, was us starting to essentially experiment with the MD Metrics program and platform. And at first we started an initiative looking at value. Um, you know, essentially the cost of the medications and the processes that we're, we were using um, and comparing that to outcomes and see how we can increase that value. And as we were getting into the project and, and as we'll talk about, the, the speed with which we were able to go through these improvement cycles, we started to notice it myriad benefits that we were able to target. And with this, you know, we were just stunned as we were going along and finding that we were able to um, provide value, provide excellent outcomes as we were reducing cost as well as reducing opioids, which was just obviously a fantastic outcome for us. And this was, when was this that you sort of first started working together on this? Dr. Lowe, when was that? Oh, well, probably two thousand. we started like 2017, 2018, uh, when we, uh, was that first run, what uh, Dr. Latham's describing. Um, and, and I know that you recently published uh, a study about, you know, sort of how, how it all came together, but um, essentially now, obviously opioids is, is a huge issue all across the country. Um, you know, Greg, when were you sort of, you know, realizing that this was something that you could do to, you know, sort of to eliminate uh, opioids from surgery? It, it was a pretty gutsy step. Um, as, as we were trying different pain relief medications for tonsillectomies, um, someone had the idea, and I forget who it was, to drop um, a pain medication and replace it with other kinds of medications as one of our several different um, trials that we were doing and you know found that our outcomes remain the same um, as far as pain control and then time to get out of the surgery center as well as nausea and vomiting were improved. And was that sort of because there were newer medications available that could sort of do the same things without having the, the you know, lasting effects that opioids have? Or was it just a, a matter of looking beyond, you know, what you'd always done? 
I, I think it's a little of both. Um, number one, there are some newer medications, newer meaning in the last um, uh, two to five, six, seven years. Um, one of those being acetaminophen or Tylenol, um, which is available as an intravenous drug, um, as well as uh, dexmedetomidine, which is an atypical um, medicine as far as pain management. Um, it, it has a sedative effect that also has a, a pain effect that is able to spare um, some of the opioids that we give. Um, and then otherwise it was just sort of having the, the guts to think outside of the box. And I really don't think we could have done that if we weren't able to very, very quickly watch what our effects were doing. In other words, we didn't want to make a, a change and have a bad outcome for our patients and sit on that for a year in the normal way that we would look at data. Um, conversely, with MD metrics, we were able to follow this essentially on a daily basis and make sure that the direction the needle was moving was exactly where we wanted it. And uh, Dan, can you can you tell me a little bit more about you know sort of how MD metrics works and how the platform that that you're using here um, you know was able to help uh, you know see how children children sort of move away from opioids. Sure. Uh, I mean, the background to it is that the country has now spent over $40 billion over the last decade um, standing up electronic medical records for hospitals. And the, the promise to the physicians at the front line uh, was we're going to spend this money, we're going to stand up this infrastructure, we're going to digitize all this healthcare data. And then the people like Greg and myself, we said, you'll be able to understand the data in a way you've never been able to before when you're on paper and we'll have these massive improvements. So that was the promise 10 years ago. The reality was uh, we, we have these um, electronic medical records and we have to enter data in, but it's really, uh, they weren't designed to allow you to look across patients. They're, they're, they're very, very good at letting you look at a single patient. So uh, you can take one, you know, you can take one patient, you can do a deep dive 10 years into their history. What you can't do with them is show me the last 100 patients a bit like this one or show me the last thousand patients who had this surgery who had this drug so the the emr was never designed to do that so that's why md metrics exists to fill that gap um and so uh, when we started working with cl children's the first thing was well let's let's look at let's go to the surgery center they do um lots and lots of um uh, ambulatory surgery there about six thousand cases a year and if you take their top you know, 10 procedures, um, that's probably about 90% of their work. Uh, so it was a very uh, good place to start uh, deploying the platform and helping the clinicians at the front line understand the outcomes. I mean, before you make any improvement work, you have to understand your baseline. And historically, that took, that took a year of digging around for data to, to get a simple answer. Um, but now, now it's just a couple of minutes. And was it, I mean, I guess, did you know going into it that you know that was going to happen that you were going to be able to reduce it or was it sort of something you, you wanted to see you know how, how it would work and sort of the, the benefit ended up being better than you had hoped uh no i think it was uh we didn't know going in when we started working with the L that in two or three years time we'll have an opiate free surgery center that we we, we there's no <laughs> way we could, no way we could have predicted that what we were very sure of was if we show these uh, very inquisitive physicians, um, allow them to understand their data and allow them to ask questions of their outcomes uh, in a way they've never been able to, 
we were confident that lots of goodness would follow from that. Um, uh, I think Dr. Latham explained it very nicely. You know, the, the value proposition is you, you give a treatment or a medication and you want to be able to see maximum uh, benefit for that. Um, and it's all, you know, we're moving to this era of value-based healthcare where you want to be able to justify every decision. The interesting thing was um, this wasn't um, this this wasn't new knowledge as such. If you look at the literature, some of the evidence that the, this team applied was ten years old. Uh, there was when they started the tonsillectomy work. The paper, original paper that inspired it, was 2010 from Texas Children's. And um, the interesting thing was that that evidence was never applied because it was. Um, because, because it was hard to. Uh, how would you know if you applied some evidence to a change of practice, whether that change made it better for your patients or worse for your patients? Um, if it takes a year to find out um, the outcomes uh, by a manual process of getting the data out. If you can, the, the difference now is once you change a protocol, well, day on day, week on week, you can see whether the patients on the new protocol that you've just implemented are doing better or worse. You can monitor it almost in real time now. And I guess, uh, Greg, that was sort of, you, you mentioned it being a gutsy move. I mean, I imagine from a, a patient satisfaction standpoint, you know, taking away the medication that, you know, alleviates pain that's in, in favor of something else you, you're not entirely sure will work. That's, that's the gutsy move. You're not really sure what's going to happen there. Well, I, I think I'll clarify and say it was a gutsy proposition because it was very much thinking outside of the box. Mm -hmm. And if, if we were doing this with traditional methodologies where we would, uh, we would establish a change and then we would have data analysts begin to pull records a year later, then we have this huge blind spot where we've changed management. And in that, and in that case, it, it would be very gutsy. We'd be watching it anecdotally, but we wouldn't be able to follow the data. In this way, we were able to follow the first patient, the sec pa second patient, the first 10, the first 50, the first 100, and have a lot of security that what we were doing um, was, was working and was beneficial for the patients. Yeah, and, and, and you know right away or fairly soon as opposed to sort of that delayed reaction where you, it takes you a while to, to sort of compile all that data. Right, we could get a sense and make sure that we weren't headed in the wrong direction. And then, you know, a, a fantastic part of the MD Metrics platform is the artificial intelligence. And with that AI, someone like me, who is not a developer of software, and, and I can look at this graphic user interface and follow these run charts and these processes over time, and with very little introduction, I can understand whether what I'm seeing is natural variation, in other words, just the random patterns and changes that occur over a population, or if what I am seeing is consistent changes in a single direction, and the software lets me know that, and lets me know how close I am to, to getting in that direction. So again, as, as Dr. Lowe said, we can, we can really watch it in real time and, and see what we're doing, which is a huge amount of confidence for us. And I, and I think the other thing too is very often physicians go in with a question. And so we'll ask the data analyst to pull X amount of data. And when we get in there, we think, 
gosh, I wish we had looked at this or pulled this kind of data because what we started to see here reminds me of another question that would be interesting to look at. And it's time consuming, it's cost intensive to pivot during a, a standard research project when we're pulling data um, to look at a little side stream. With MD metrics, we can do that. Um, with a click of, a, of some radio buttons, we can open up um, some different kind of data that we didn't think to look at in, in the first hand and, and allow us to, you know, the frontline clinician to essentially explore, um, which, you know, allows, gives us an incredible amount of creativity that we haven't had before. That's great. Um, and Greg, tell me a little bit about sort of, I mean, obviously opioids have been used had been used for a long time in surgeries. What was sort of the uh, the effects on on the patient beyond obviously pain management? You know, in terms of uh, patients becoming addicted and things like that. What were you know what were sort of the um, sort of the effects you know in the past when you guys had used opioids? Sure. The number one complication of anesthesia is nausea and vomiting afterwards. Um, anyone listening who's had surgery may have, um, you know, had, had that event happen. And especially for outpatient surgery, where we have so many cases um, that come through in a daytime, we want to make sure that we have throughput. In other words, we can safely take care of the patient and discharge them home. As soon as you have nausea and vomiting, that easily can add an extra 30, 60, 90 minutes of, of having to manage that and the patient and family being pretty miserable as, as they work through that. Um, opioids cause nausea and vomiting. And so when we move, remove opioids, we saw our incidence of nausea and vomiting reach zero, which is just stunning. I've, I've not seen that in my career. Um, and obviously, as far as a, a institutional cost basis, what, When we're able to get patients through more quickly, we're able to free up additional staff to take care of age, um, you know, to to move through the system much, much faster. Um, sorry, with the echo there. Um, this data has not allowed us to look so far at um, what happens after the surgery, uh, but that's a next project that we're um, potentially uh, would like to address. And when, you know, at what point would you sort of do that? Would you sort of follow up with patients at, at a certain point after surgeries are done? Or how would, or would you have to sort of sit down and figure out how, how to study that? We, we will have to look down, look at how to study that. Um, you know, as soon as the, the patient leaves the surgery center or leaves the hospital, then their data is no longer pulled into the electronic medical record. So then, you know, we would have to use um, some traditional methodology to to look at that. All right, um, Dan, have you uh, been sort of talking to other hospitals about doing similar projects? Have you, you know, sort of obviously you've published this paper now. Have you been hearing from other uh, interested parties who might want to try this? Yeah, I think this concept of opiate-free anesthesia is really catching on. Um, it was thought as of a, almost um, an unreachable goal even just a, a couple of years ago because for the last 50 years uh, opioids have been 
kind of a central tenant of how to how to do anesthesia. Um, even though over the last you know decade other drugs and techniques have come along, um, medicine changes very very slowly. Uh, so we're, you know our our team's been invited to to speak now over a dozen times at conferences across the the country, uh, also international conferences. We've got invited to uh, talk to other hospital systems. And since the paper came out just just a, a week ago, uh, we've had lots of lots of inbound calls from uh, uh, lots of uh, you know, hospitals and surgery centres uh, around around the country uh, asking more, more questions. And uh, this is not it's not just as simple as give me the recipe or the protocol. Um, as I said, the, the 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 protocols were derived from work that was done five or ten years ago, and that's in the published literature. The difference is being able to change physician behavior. Is if you're, you know, so Greg and I have been practicing probably you know, about 20 years apiece or just over. And uh, to, to get folks like us to change our behavior, you have to be pretty sure that you're doing the right thing. So a piece of evidence published in the New England Journal doesn't quite do it. There's, that's what we had. There was good evidence published 10 years ago that you, you could try this, but getting someone to do something different is is a bit of a leap of faith if you can't see the result of your work and that's the difference we, we are now able to see you make a change in your protocol and within as, as greg said in the first five ten patients you, you're seeing them come through the system and you go well they look better than the the last 500 let's keep going and, and that's that's the magic source um and i'll add on top of that and say that you it is difficult to steal a single ingredient or a single idea from another institution and apply it to your own ex and expect the exact same response because every single variable of your institution impacts all those different points. And so it may move the needle in a similar direction, but you really do need to test it within your own institution to make sure that it fits in with everything else that you're doing. Yeah. yeah um, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, so you know, and, and you're probably familiar, Jay, with the distinction. So when when there's a piece of literature published in in the medical literature, they are typically publishing trial-based efficacy. Did it work in another part of the country with a different population in a different system, and what were the results? And when they do a, a conventional trial. Um, they have inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. So they said, I'll only take this kind of patients and you, and if you, uh, you're a different kind of patient, you can't be in, inside this trial. So what's published is very usually a very narrow view of, hey, this drug works for this specific population in this part of the country in this system. Right. The, the trouble is, now we're in Seattle or wherever you are, you're trying to apply that evidence into your environment and everyone for, for decades has accepted uh, that the real-world effectiveness is different from the trial-based efficacy. There's an efficacy-effectiveness gap. Everyone has understood that. What we haven't done a good job in the past 20 years is measuring effectiveness. We, we, we take a leap of faith and say, well, it worked in, in this paper, so we're going to do this, and we congratulate us, uh, ourselves in medicine for implementing it. <laughs> We've never actually had the ability to measure effectiveness in real time, which is unlike every other modern business on the planet right now. Right. Um, and, and, you know, speaking of sort of, I guess, bringing it into your facility, Greg, you know, 
what kind of uh, how did you get buy-in from from everyone you know like you were talking about uh you know the surgeons and you know sort of have being set in their ways obviously with opioids using them for so long how did you sort of you know convince them to to buy into this it, I think luckily Seattle Children's Surgery Center was the correct place to first implement this software um, because I don't know that it's completely unique, but it's certainly on an end of the spectrum with, with so many of us having buy-in to these processes. In other words, when we opened this, we opened it with Toyota's lean technology, um, you know, which is we're looking at value at every step. At, Every decision that we're that we're making, we look at these things and make sure that every process aligns with with our mission, with what we want to do, and and we change when when things can be improved. And so that mentality, that mindset, was already there as a as a tenant of of this surgery center. And so you know, very much serendipity that that Dr. Lowe and and his creative mind um, brought MD Metrics to an environment that was just right to to implement this and, and have people be very, very willing to challenge our beliefs and, and try new things and um, compare whether one regional anesthetic was better than the other. And it's it's been a fantastic ride so far. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's incredible, really. I guess you guys, you know, it sounds like you were sort of already, you know, open to the to, to new ideas like that. So it helped that you know, even before, um, you know, you brought this in there, you guys were sort of uh, maybe more open than, I don't know, maybe another facility that, that you know, isn't as uh, moderate forward thinking. But um, right. um, so, Dan, I guess. Jay, can I, can I sure. jump in there just to write off the answer? One sure. of the, uh, you asked, how do we get buy-in? Um, one, one concrete example. So, when we started the tonsillectomy work and reducing the opioids, we added a drug called Ketorolac. And Ketorolac is a, a, is a non-steroidal drug in the same family as Motrin or ibuprofen you can buy at the store. And 25 years ago, uh, we believed, the medicine believed, that Ketorolac caused bleeding after um, tonsillectomy surgery. So for the last 25 years, um, no, no surgeon would allow or, or permit their patients to have a non-steroidal during at the at the end of surgery because there's this prior belief that it caused that. Um, five years ago, there was a, a, a very well um, <clears throat> conducted study by uh, Dr. Parikh, who's actually he's actually the medical director at the, at the uh, Bellevue Surgery Center, and it said that Ketorolac is totally safe for pediatric tonsillectomy and does not increase bleeding. And it's a it was a very well conducted study meta analysis and. Despite the fact that the, our, the medical director there published it, we couldn't convince the surgeons to use it. Uh, and the, the tipping point was, okay, five years later, we tried again, but this time we had data. So can we add Ketorolac into the tonsillectomy protocol? We got a no again, and they said, hey, but there is this paper that says it doesn't increase bleeding risk, so how about we track the 30-day return to surgery as, uh, which you know, which would be a, a, a proxy for bleeding, and we'll track it in real time. If it spikes above 1%, which is what it's been historically, we'll stop. And everyone goes, okay, let's try that. 
So they were, you were able to shift the mindsets that's you know, been ingrained for over 20 years by showing them their own data in their own patients. And again, that's the magic sauce. Yeah, I suppose that carries more weight than, like you said, a study, you know, somewhere else. You you actually mm -hmm. have data from their own facility. Um, yeah. So how is this going to translate, I guess, to, you know, other surgery centers, you know, uh, non-pediatric, uh, you know, just sort of, do you see this study and, and you know, sort of the, you, now you've got, you have this data that you can show uh, that this worked you know, will this sort of have a big impact kind of going forward on, you know, on the use of opioids in, in surgery, you know, across the country? Is that a question for me or for Greg? That one? <laughs> Either one, I guess. I guess uh, let's start with you, Dan. <laughs> okay. Um, I think uh, I, I think this concept of opiate-free anesthesia or opiate-sparing anesthesia can be broadly carried across the country. We know that right now uh, there's, um, in opiates specifically, there's short-term um, complications from opioids, and we know there's medium and long-term complications from opioids. You know, the short-term ones we've mentioned already, you know, apart from the nausea and vomiting, which is inconvenient and terrible, and but doesn't harm you, it's a, just it's a bad experience. The more acute short-term complication is, uh, respiratory depression because they, they do stop you you know um, they can inhibit your 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 breathing center in your brain so by avoiding opiates uh, you actually make you change the risk profile of surgery that risk virtually disappears um, what we have learned is uh, as we've done um, more and more surgeries without opioids is that for some of our more fragile patients who are at severe risk of respiratory depression uh, if you don't give the opioids, their risk profile changes dramatically. And some of these patients who you used to have to admit to ICU afterwards for the intensive care unit for monitoring, they don't need to be admitted to ICU, which is a high value resource. So those patients can be managed on the floor. And some of the patients who had to be admitted for overnight observation um, no longer have to be admitted for overnight observation. They keep them for a few hours. And if they're totally safe, um, um, they, 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 they've been safely discharged home. So in this era for other hospitals, uh, where trying to increase the capacity and the throughput, because um, that's really important now, uh, because we have this huge you know, issue of how, how do we take care of more patients with the same resources? Anything you can do to shorten hospital stay or stay after surgery and allow them, the patients to be safely discharged home uh, sooner is a very, very good thing. We know that for the average 250-bed hospital, um, there's good data from the American Society of Anesthesiologists that the average 250-bed U.S. hospital has about an extra 650 days of patient care added to, to, their, uh, to their burden of care from opioids from surgery alone. So these are uh, gastrointestinal um, complications from, from uh, opioids and also respiratory complications. We know that adds about 650 days. Uh, and that soon adds up to millions of dollars. So I think it can be broadly applied. The long-term consequence, we, we, we talked about in, 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 the, uh, in the anesthesia analgesia paper I shared with you, um, has, you know, we know that unfortunately, 7% of adult patients after surgery become persistent opioid users. Uh, that's defined as they're still taking opioids 90 days after their surgery. And it doesn't matter if it's a minor or major surgery. Um, 
if you're still taking opioids at 90 days, that, that's defined in the, we call that persistent opioid use, but that opens other risks for opiate diversion or opiate misuse and even overdose. So it's, it's a very important issue. And if we, can, if we can kind of reduce the opioids at the source during and immediately after surgery, I hope the next phase is, can we, can we, how does that impact the first five days? And if you can stop, if you can get people off their opioids by five days, you've, you'll stop that slow march to the 90 day conversion. Yeah, that's, that's I think um, Dan touched on a lot of the points that are, you know, near and dear to my heart as, as far as what we accomplished. And, and I think the other thing, too, when you say, what, what is this like to roll out to the other centers? There's a lot of really creative people out there. And what we recently published is, is creative, is thinking outside of the box. What will happen when other clients have access to their real-time data? and put their creativity to work. What, what are we gonna see in a, in a relatively short period of time to be able to increase outcomes, to decrease risk, improve overall value to the health system? I, I think it could be very, very exciting to put something like this in the physician's hands. All right, well, gentlemen, thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time to, to talk to me today. Um, sounds like, a, you know, obviously really great uh, use of uh, both of your uh, you know your energies and uh, and efforts so uh, hopefully we can see this uh, moving across the country and uh, and really getting into just about every facility thanks for having us Jay all right thanks Thank for you. having me. Right. have a good day take care all right. bye and that wraps up episode five of PSQH the podcast thanks for listening I hope you join me next time you can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com And you can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.